Good morning, Veritas. You braved that big winter storm and everything. Here you are. The advent of winter. The shameless segue into advent. The coming of winter is here. And also, we're starting this advent series. So, um, we're going to hit pause on our journey through the book of James. Uh, because we're, oh man, did I hear an aw? I know, it's been great. I love, I love the book of James. But uh, we're going to give a few weeks to give really focused worship and attention on the coming of, of Jesus Christ, and, and appropriately so. So we're taking a few weeks here as we uh, get toward Christmas time. But we're, we're looking at these, these virtues, these traditional Advent virtues of peace, joy, love, and hope. And we're beginning to ask the question, though, as we do this time, um, let's be honest. As we look at those virtues and then look around at a world who's now 2,000 years into this advent, right, of these virtues, um, how are we doing with those? Do, could we honestly say that we're living in a world where there's more love, more joy, more peace, more hope, right? Like if there was a barometer showing global, you know, joy, <laughs> I think that thing would be kind of buried pretty low right now. You know what I mean? Like, and so you just wonder, is this part of what maybe some of our more cynical friends or neighbors or whatever look over at the Christian church and they're like, oh, there they are again, wah, 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 you know, singing about all these virtues and uh, pretending like Jesus brought peace and love and joy. No, they didn't. It's, it's just a bunch of fairy tales. It's just a bunch of rubbish. That's why I don't go to churches, because they keep saying this stuff, and, and here we are, right? Maybe Karl Marx was right, right? The, the, the father of communism, maybe Karl Marx was right when he said, oh, that religion stuff, that Christianity that's just the opiate for the masses, meaning just put them in a drug-induced little stupor pretending like there's actually going to be love, joy, and peace, and it's never actually going to happen. But that's all religion does, just kind of intoxicates them and makes them live in this unreal world or whatever. Here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start today with peace, and I, I'm going to say, church, we are not to be back on our heels in a defensive posture trying to still scream, no, there is peace, there is peace. I, I, I want to redefine these virtues based on the scriptures, and, and get a little more robust in our proclamation of these things. But um, to set up peace, though, I want you to know why the world is disillusioned with this idea of peace. We're going to start there, okay. So uh, back in the 1950s, so just, just remember, I wasn't even there, right? That's how long ago that was. Um, back in the 1950s, uh, our country had just come through World War I, then a World War II, then a Korean War, and all this. And so by the time you get to the 50s, there's, there's this real hope. Like, okay, we went through a half century of just war after war after war. Maybe we could bring some peace on this earth. And so there was this, this song that was written for the International Children's Choir, Let There Be Peace on Earth. Remember, that comes around quite a bit during Christmas time. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Let there be peace on earth, the peace that was meant to be, you know. And so this, this idea, let's all hold hands and bring this peace in. Well, here's what happened. The 60s started rolling around and the 70s started rolling around. We got the peacenik generation. I was actually part of that. So the peaceniks, and we're still trying to hold hands and hold on to peace in the world and Coca-Cola commercials with peace, all this stuff, like trying to hold on to this thing. And by the time you get to the, the 2000s, Still not a lot of peace going on in the world. 
And so uh, the rock band U2 uh, wrote this song that I thought was pretty poignant. It's called Peace on Earth. And they're looking around, and what, what happened was, right, right uh, as they were writing this song, uh, there was another bombing in Dublin that took 29 lives and several hundred people. I mean, just this last week, just see what was going on in Dublin, more stabbings and riots. And, well, they were, they were coming upon one of those moments. And uh, The Edge started writing this song. Bono jumped in to, to help finish it called Peace on Earth. Listen to the lyrics of this. Heaven on earth? Oh, man, we need it now. I'm sick of all this hanging around, sick of sorrow, sick of the pain, sick of hearing again and again that there's going to be peace on earth. Jesus, can you take the time to throw a drowning man a line? Peace on earth. Like this cry saying, come on, man, we've been waiting and waiting. Jesus, can you just throw us a line? Just, just give us a moment. We're just looking for peace on earth. All right, well, church, I'm here both to validate that the, the cynics, all right, there's no peace on this earth right now, right? Let's just say that that's true, but that doesn't mean that we've got to be back on our heels. We're not peddling a false hope, church. We are not. We proclaim a gospel that promises peace and joy and love and hope, and, and we're going to proclaim it boldly and strongly, and we're going to sing the songs about it, and we're going to read the scriptures about it because we're going to let Jesus define peace for us, the kind of peace that he actually brought, and it is so legit. So that's what we're going to start today, all right? So we're going to go to uh, Luke chapter 2, one of the most famous, familiar passages uh, for Advent season, the Christmas story. So let's do this. Let's go ahead and stand up, you guys. You've got a Bible. Go to Luke chapter 2. You can follow along. Such a beautiful text to start off our Advent series. Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went out to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flocks. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Oh, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is Messiah the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, well, let's go straight to Bethlehem. Let's see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off, found with Mary and Joseph, the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message that they were told about this child. 
And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. This is God's word. All right, you may be seated. (coughs) Excuse me. All right, let's see what's going on here. Again, probably one of the most familiar passages to be read at Christmas time. And perhaps in this favorite passage, maybe the favorite phrase in this favorite passage is that one, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. So much so that the, the world has just, even the Christian world as well as the secular world, latched onto this phrase, peace on earth. You're going to see it everywhere. You know, walk, walk into Walmart, whatever, right? You're going to see peace on earth, peace on earth. Why? It's, it's this favorite thing. It's enticing. It's appealing. We want peace on earth. Our, our Christmas songs, Silent Night, Away in a Major, we just sang uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. All, a bunch of our Christmas songs have this idea of peace on earth. But again, we're looking around, you guys. Let's be honest. Ukraine and Russia, Gaza and Israel, and China and Taiwan. Like, either the wars that are currently going on, the wars that might soon erupt, it's just everywhere. Well, well wait, maybe, maybe the angels were talking about internal peace, right? Maybe that's what was going on. Maybe, maybe it's not geopolitical peace. Maybe it's this internal peace. Well, even at that, I was just reading a fairly recent uh, Pew Research deal on, on teenagers, and listen to this. Seven in ten teens say anxiety and depression are major problems among their peers. So it's an interesting study because it's, it's not looking at psychiatrists or whatever. In talking to teens, as they look around their peer group, teens are saying about their friends, seven in ten, they would say, of their friends have depression and anxiety. That's startling. That's a startling statistic. So what I'm saying is, whether you're looking at geopolitical peace or the inner peace that we would like to see in people's souls, right? Not a lot of that. So angels, where is the Christmas peace that 2,000 years ago was promised to us. But I want you to hear me out. The angels were not wrong about Jesus bringing peace on earth. It's just that we have chosen to define peace on earth very narrowly, right? Either a global ceasefire, no more war. That's when we'll know that there's peace on earth. Or a tranquil, well-ordered, uh, you know, no fear, no anxiety kind of life. Is that what the angels meant? No. It's, it's not a promise that, has been broken or something, because that's not what was meant. In fact, you don't even have to leave Luke chapter 2 to have Luke qualify this this piece a little bit. So here's what happens deeper into Luke 2. Mary and Joseph take Jesus at just seven days old, as was the custom of Jewish parents, to the the temple. And there he will be circumcised and dedicated to the Lord. And so they go into the temple for this, again, just days old. And they meet this dude, Simeon, who walks up and takes the baby in his arms. Now, you can imagine, first-time mom, just a few days old, wrapped up in this cloth, and all of a sudden this old dude comes up and takes him out of your arms. You're like, hey, 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 you know. It must have seemed like the most natural thing in the world because here's the way it goes. So look at Luke 2, verse 28. So this very godly older man, Simeon, took Jesus in his arms and praised God and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation, 
You've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles, glory to your people Israel. Man, you almost wish it had ended there because, yeah, that's what we're talking about, glory, glory, you know, the peace that you promised. But look what happens, verse 33. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, this is his blessing, okay? He's going to bless Mary by saying this. Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Days after Jesus' birth, and already, here's the first prophecy to be prophesied over him. He's going to be the cause of the rise and fall of many. He's going to be a dividing point. See what he's saying? He's going to be like a fulcrum, right? People are going to rise or fall depending on what they believe about this one. He's going to be a point of division. That's what he's saying. This, This prince of peace is going to come as a point of division. There's going to be, he says, Opposition. Opposition will actually rise. Later in Luke 12, Jesus is going to say, actually, I'm going to, that division's going to go right into the midst of families. Father against mother and daughter against mother. And right, remember that whole thing later on in Luke 12? That, that his very presence is going to be divisive. In fact, Mary, your own inner turmoil, it's going to be wrecked. It's like a sword is going to pierce your soul as you start watching this thing play out to this child whom the angel said is going to bring peace on earth. In fact, when you go further into Jesus' life, when you get all the way to Luke 21, here's here's what he says, now edging toward the time of the cross, he says this, look to his disciples, when you hear of wars and rebellions, oh, don't be alarmed, indeed, it's necessary that these things take place first. Oh, but the end won't come right away. He told them, oh, no, nation is going to raise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places. He's saying, hey, my people, my followers, I just need you to know this world is going to be a very dangerous place. This world is going to be a frightening place and a place of great division. So the question we're going to ask again, if the angels aren't promising, you know, peace, like what we would imagine peace should be, like no more wars and, you know, inner harmony, what is the peace that Jesus brings about? Well, it's actually, if you can imagine it, actually even more important than geopolitical peace. More important even than our inner psyche. Here's the truth about the kind of peace that Jesus brings. And I want you to be ready because this is straight shooting. This is, let's clear the air and talk exactly about what the Bible speaks of when it speaks of peace on earth. We've got to get the first thing right. The first thing we've got to get right is that the war is actually between you and God. The war that Jesus comes to bring peace for, the war is actually between you and God. So, to back that up, 
I do want to go to the book of James. I said we we're going to put James on the shelf. Not for very long. Let's pull him back out. <laughs> James chapter 4, because you don't get a more straight shooter than James, right? And here's what James, a straight shooter that we've come to know over these last weeks, here's what he says. James 4, verse 4. You adulterous people. Here's him being all nice again, right? <laughs> you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. He just looked you square in the eye and called you an adulterer. And then he added, he piled on, talking about hostility toward God and an enemy of God. Here is what James is trying to, to get us to awaken to, to get us to look in the mirror a little bit. Here is God, the faithful God, who gave you life, brought you into this world. And more than that, this is the God who gives you life and breath and everything else. He keeps giving and giving and giving. And then when he looks out and sees that you guys are messing up and that I'm messing up, you know what he does? He doesn't just run away from us. He runs toward us and, in fact, lays down his life for people who are sinning and rebelling against him. That's the faithfulness of God. And so then the question is, so are you faithful back toward God? Like, do you match that level of faithfulness back toward God? Well, I mean, maybe not quite as faithful toward God. I mean, you know, well, just imagine with me for a moment. If you were doing uh, marriage counseling and you saw that one of the, of the two sitting in front of you was just incredibly faithful, you know, just unflinchingly faithful, and the other one going, I mean, I'm probably not quite as faithful as she is. I mean, wh what would you think in that moment? No, you're an adulterer. Don't just, well, maybe not a, you know, quite as much, whatever. Here's James trying to say, no, God is utterly faithful toward you, and you're not. You're making, you're buddying up, sidling up with the world. You're, you're, you're not even faithful toward him. Okay, so what about these wars? What about the inner turmoil? What about that, James? A couple of verses earlier, here's what James says. James 4.1, what is the source of wars, the fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and don't have. You murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. So did God cause war? Isn't this crazy? Wars break out. Bad stuff starts happening. People start attacking each other. And immediately we want to blame God and say, why aren't you bringing peace? Here's what James is trying to say. Hey, wake up, people. <laughs> You're the cause of wars. That stuff starts in your heart and soul. And so we have these little micro wars. We get real aggressive toward each other. And then all of a sudden we clan up a little bit and, and, and we start getting people on our side. And then we start ganging up. And sometimes that, that clanning up keeps going to entire nations, going against other nations. But at the heart and soul of it is you. It's what's going on in your heart, in your soul. And that's what goes on. And then we have the audacity to turn around and get mad at God for it. James is trying to say, you've got to embrace the fact that this, this greater war that's going on is actually between you and God. Have you ever had a one-sided relationship? Have you ever had one of those friendships or maybe within the family that you feel like you're the one giving and giving and giving and somebody else is taking and taking and taking, right? Have you ever had one of those kind of, to we call them toxic relationships. Ever had one of those? Here's what James wants you to embrace. Yeah, that's the relationship that's going on between you and God. 
he's giving and giving and giving, and you're just really glad to take and take and take. He says, you adulterers, you're in hostility toward God. You're the enemy of God. That's, that's humanity when it comes to God. Now listen, God does care about wars. Of course he does. And, and that's why you keep reading in the book, and we're going to find out that he's going to finally truly put all wars down, and, and the sword is going to be turned into the plowshare, and we're going to have truly peace on earth, no more wars. It's going to be great. And he does care about our inner psyche. He cares desperately for that. That's why he can bring healing and, and, and he can restore. And one day, again, you keep reading the book, he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes and we're going to be fully restored, right? But step one, step one, as we have it right now, as we're sitting here today, step one is to acknowledge, number one, the war that he came to bring peace for is between you and God, which leads us right into the second point that I think the angels want us to know about. The only appropriate response is surrender. Okay, if you're going to acknowledge that there is war and it's between you and God, then the next appropriate response is, is surrender. Going back to Luke chapter 2, I love this. You know, we, we just had read how the angel of the Lord stood before, glory of the Lord sh- shining around the shepherds, and they reacted appropriately. Terrified. <laughs> the Bible says they were terrified in the presence of the Lord. That's appropriate. If all of a sudden you got, you know, thrown into the presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, bam, they were terrified. But I love what they do. After the angels left, the shepherds said to each other, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened that the Lord has made known toward us. He, it, they run to Jesus. They are terrified in that first moment, that flash of moment, and then they run to Jesus. Well, thinking about that whole moment, it got me to think about Psalm 2, and and I'll tell you why. Psalm 2 is all about, it's like this prophecy pointing us toward the coming Christ, written very many years before Christ came. But here's what Psalm 2 does. It starts in this, again, warlike kind of motif. So Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? The peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth, they take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let's throw off their chains. Let's, let's throw their ropes off of us. So this whole idea of rebellion, right? So, so Psalm 2 is all couched in this idea of, of animosity. And there's, there's an enemy, right? And, and, and uh, we're at war here, right? The very last verse of Psalm 2. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment, and all who take refuge in him are happy. This, this psalm, it, 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 he's coaxing us to run toward Jesus, pay homage. Some, some of your uh, translations in verse 12 instead pay homage to the son. Uh, it says kiss the son. And that, that's actually the Hebrew language is to kiss the son. And, and here's why. So we're not, as Americans, a real kissy culture, maybe especially Iowans. No, we're not a kissy, kissy culture. You know, I spent some time in, in Russia teaching some pastors years ago. And do you know in the Russian church, it's the tradition to the men kiss each other on the lips and the women come in and kiss each other on the lips? Like, this may be going a little too far. Okay, that might be, that, well, that one even a weird, but, but there's a whole lot of cultures that they're warm cultures, that kissing's a, a, a very appropriate thing. Even our New Testament, right? Like, uh, give each other a brotherly kiss. So the idea of kissing the sun, it's because it's a warm, like, hospitality embrace. 
You've been on this posture of of fighting, warring. You come to your senses, and what do you do? Do do you cower when the sun is going to come? Because you've been an enemy of his. Do do you run and hide from the sun? No. You know what the psalmist says? Run up, because what you're going to find is he's going to kiss you, right? Kiss you on the cheeks. He's going to, maybe you want to kiss him on the hand. Whatever that is, he's welcoming you, right? You'd only get into the presence of one that you've been at war with if they were standing there with their arms open wide. He says, all who take refuge in him are happy. Find your refuge in the one that you've been in hostility with. Animosity toward this. Find refuge. Find a shelter there. I love Psalm 36. It says this, how priceless your faithful love is, God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Isn't that beautiful, Psalm 36? Find refuge. That, there's that idea there too. The refuge in the shadow of your wings, clinging tightly. So when I use the word surrender, don't think that I'm talking about an image of like a POW surrendering, thus getting put in shackles and getting taken off as a prisoner of war in some camp or something. No, no. Think of this surrender more like a child who's been really rebellious against their dad and the dad's been watching the whole thing happen and then they turn around and in brokenness start running toward him. What does he do? Grabs them and holds them and that's where they find their security. That's, that, that's where they find their shelter, right? The safety and the warmth because you, you're met with faithful love. That's what Psalm 2 is saying. You're met with faithful love. That's what the shepherds did. They, oh man, I'm terrified. I gotta run and see Jesus, Right? Which leads us then to the very last point that I think we're to get from Luke chapter 2. Jesus came to bring you peace. Jesus came to bring you peace. Now right now, as it sits today, not so much the promise of geopolitical peace or the internal peace. It's, it's what happened in Luke 2.20, the very last verse, the shepherds, they returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. There's a joy because there's a reconciliation that takes place because of this Jesus. So Jesus came to fulfill this very ancient prophecy, many, many ancient prophecies, but the one I want to point to is just this one short one in, in Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, it says this, but he, talking about the coming Messiah, this one who was just born in the manger, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punishment for our peace was on him, and we're healed by his wounds. Jesus came to be the sin bearer, to to absorb the anger of God, the hostility of God, even though it was actually our hostility, our rage, us becoming enemies with God, yet he himself comes down and absorbs all that hostility and rage into himself. While we were still sinning, Christ came and died for us, which is why we sing the songs like Hark the Herald Angels Sing. If you guys were in here for that first song, you got to sing this song just this morning, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. In other words, it's, it's kind of weird language. You guys, this song was written before America was even America, okay? It was just land across the sea. So a, co- a couple of the early Methodists uh, wrote, wrote this hymn back in the early 1700s. Hark, the herald angels, the, the angels are heralding, so they're proclaiming, so listen up. That's what he's saying. Listen to what the angels are, are proclaiming here. 
glory to the newborn king, and then the very next line, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners, what? Reconciled. That's what the angels are proclaiming, right? The, the Wesleys got it right when they wrote this song. We bring glory to God, bring glory to this newborn king because there's peace on earth. Why? Because he's come to reconcile us. The war is now over if we will run and kiss the sun, embrace the sun and say, oh, Jesus, you came to bring me peace. So church, we, we got to proclaim peace on earth. We got to boldly sing this stuff and read this stuff and say this stuff. We're not going to be back on our heels, defensive, like, oh, I know there's no peace. No, no, no. I'm saying Jesus has brought peace to a world at war with God. Jesus has come. He brings us his peace, which is why uh, here we are on a Christmas morning, and we're going to have communion. We're going to have communion, which actually goes forward to the death of Christ. And yes, exactly so. We're going to have communion at Christmas time because we want to remember that the reason we kneel before the newborn king is because that king would grow up to give his life to bring you peace. That war between you and the Father is going to be resolved. Peace will come because of what Jesus did. Just like Isaiah said, he is going to take your rebellion and your iniquities, lay it on him, and at the death of Christ, we can then have peace. And then you look further, and he rises again, and you look further, and he comes back and crushes all war and, and, and heals all our inner trauma. All of that is there, but it begins with a child being born and a child growing up to die for us, to bring us peace. So I want to pray for us this morning as we head into time of sharing communion, because this, this place needs to be filled with worship to that kind of a king. So will you pray with me? Jesus, would you take these familiar verses, well-worn place in our Bibles, and awaken in us just a hunger for peace, and Lord, we do want peace in the Middle East, in Eastern Europe, in the Far East. We, we do, Lord. We pray for that as well, Lord. But it's all going to be begin as you bring peace to us and the war that rages in our hearts. Jesus, thank you that you loved us so much with such faithful love that you were loving us even while we were rebelling against you, even while we held up our fists, even while we wanted to go at war with you at times in our hearts, and so you loved us so much, you gave your life for us. So let us proclaim peace to people who are far off and peace to people who are near because you brought peace to us, Lord. And we worship you for it. In Christ's name, amen.